the Bain Free Radio Hour. Today on the podcast, a war with a profoundly alien species, a shape-shifting private investigator, and a CIA agent you won't soon... remember? Plus, Sarah A. Hoyt talks the latest installment in the award-winning Dark Ship series, and we begin our serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Liaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. All that, right now. there in podcast land. It's a pleasure to have you along. This is the Bain Free Radio Hour, and I am David F. Shirod, once again sitting in for Tony Daniel. It's great to be back with you all. In the news this week, we'll take a look at the mass market paperback books for the month of May. First up, we have Imperative, which asks the question, what happens when assimilation fails? The war with the Arduans, profoundly alien invaders who originally arrived in slower-than-light ships, is over. Most of those attackers are now probationary and very productive citizens of the Rim Federation. However, many among the Arduan's warrior caste have accepted neither defeat nor the personhood of any of the other intelligent races. Their leader, the ruthless admiral of the second Arduan Exodus, is in firm control of the Zarzuela system. Along with a fifth column among the peaceable Arduans, she hopes to find allies and subsequent refugee fleets that abandon their race's now-dead home system long ago. But as the victors, diplomats, attempt to soothe tensions with these warlike neighbors, two heroes of the war, veteran Admiral Ian Trevain and young troubleshooter Ossian Weathermere, suspect they have stumbled upon a deeper Arduan plot, one which could shatter the pan-sentient union and perhaps interstellar civilization itself. Imperative is written by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon and is the seventh book in the Starfire series. Next up is David B. Coe's Shadow Blade, the third in his series called The Case Files of Justice Fearson. Justice Fearson is a were-mist and a private detective. He wields potent magic, but every month on the full moon, he loses his mind. His battles with insanity have already cost him his job as a cop. He can't afford to let them interfere with his latest case. Phoenix, Arizona has become ground zero in a magical war, and an army of were-creatures, blood sorcerers, and necromancers has made Jay its number one target. When he is hired to track down a woman who has gone missing with her two young children, he has a hunch that the Dark Ones are to blame. But he's also brought in by the police to help with a murder investigation, and all the evidence implicates this same woman. Soon he is caught up in a deadly race to find not only the young family, but also an ancient weapon that could prove decisive in the looming conflict. Can he keep himself alive long enough to reach the woman and her kids before his enemies do? And can he claim the weapon before the people he loves and the world he knows are lost in a storm, flame, blood, and darkest sorcery? And last but not least, we have Eric James Stone's thrilling debut novel, Unforgettable. In the near future, a fluke of quantum mechanics renders Nat Morgan utterly forgettable. No one can remember he exists for more than a minute after he's gone. It's a useful ability for his career as a CIA agent, even if he has to keep reminding his boss that he exists. Nat's attempt to steal a quantum chip prototype is thwarted when a former FSB agent, Yelena Simeonova, attempts to steal the same technology for the Russian mob. 
Along with the brilliant Iranian physicist who wants to defect, Nat and Yelena must work together to stop a ruthless billionaire from finishing a quantum supercomputer that will literally control the fate of the world. And those are your mass market paper books for the month of May from Bain Books. And now let's listen in on the interview I conducted with Sarah A. Hoyt about her new book in the Dark Ship series, Dark Ship Revenge. All right, we are here with Sarah A. Hoyt. She is the author of a dozen novels, such as the uh, Shifter Saga, which includes Draw One in the Dark, Gentleman Takes a Chance, and Noah's Boy. She's also the author of the acclaimed Shakespearean fantasy series, starring, starting with the mythopoetic award finalist, Ill Met by Moonlight. Her short stories have appeared in magazines such as Asimov, Analog, Amazing, and Weird Tales, as well as many anthologies. We've talked to her, or I have talked to her on the podcast about those in the past. And of course, she is also uh, the author of the award-winning Dark Ship science fiction adventure series, which includes Dark Ship Thieves, Dark Ship Renegades, A Few Good Men, Through Fire, and the just-released Dark Ship Revenge, which we are here to talk about today. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for being on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you for having me. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, this is this is an award-winning series. The first book, I believe, won the Prometheus Award. Um, that's Dark Ship Thieves. And uh, this is the fifth book in the series. Um, but uh, I will confess, and I hope you'll forgive me, this is the first one I have read, but I didn't have trouble following it. It does work as a, a standalone. Um, but uh, perhaps you could maybe catch us up to speed. What is uh, the series about? And uh, maybe without avoiding avoiding as many spoilers as you can, catch us up um, with the first four books uh, to the beginning of Dark Ship Revenge. It's really hard to summarize the series without spoilers. Um, it's about 500 years in the future. The technology isn't much different because it has been deliberately suppressed. I should say the technology in use, the technology most characters know about. They have a lot more, but it's used only by a few. Um, it occurred to me sometime, oh, after the third book, that it's actually a fairly dystopic future. It took that long for the dime to drop because my character's my characters don't experience it as a dystopic future. Oh, no, no, no. <coughs> there is sort of that, um, how do I put it? Uh, the prerequisite of helplessness or, or hopelessness for it to be a too dystopic future. I'm, I'm thinking, when I was 14, I spent the summer reading, uh, dystopias, including uh, Brave New World and uh, 1984. And I was 14, so it didn't really affect my baseline mood very much. But I think if, if an adult did it, he would become, he or she would become extremely depressed. Because there is a sense of you can't defeat the system. The problem is the characters I write don't see it that way. Um, they, um, 
they refuse to, to admit the system can't be defeated, which means starting in Darkship Thieves, my main character of sorts in the series is Athena, Athena here at Nistra. And in the first book, which remains my favorite, mostly because I tried to sell it so many years, um, and then sold it by, and almost by accident, but it was like 11 years old when when it came up in Bayon. And it has a lot of my young self in it. So Athena comes in contact with an almost pure libertarian society in a hidden colony at Eden. The problem is that like almost all pure libertarian societies, it can only exist so long as it's isolated. So the moment there's contact with Earth, both societies start to fall apart, actually. And on Earth, that's a good thing. Actually, when I, when I was talking to Tony about the second one in the series, which is an Athena book and takes place mostly in Eden, um, we discussed it and she said, what about the regime on Earth? Because those people need to go down. And I agreed with her wholeheartedly. And uh, that's how the sub-series, I mean, you say it's book five, and it is book five. It's actually the third book in the main series, because the, the subsidiary series is The Earth Revolution, which is A Few Good Men and Through Fire. And that deals, that deals more closely with how things fall apart on Earth. And, and it has a different character every book so that we get the perspective that Athena couldn't have. Even though the characters are all cons in the main series and, and have contact with Athena, it's still a perspective she can give us. Okay, this sounds really complicated. It isn't. <laughs> it, it sounds complicated, but it doesn't read that way. It reads, you know, I had no problem following along, you know, reading. So. <laughs> I'm very glad. I'm very glad because this is the book where I sort of gave up on giving you all the background. I, I think that's mm -hmm. normal. A third book with the same character. At some point, you go, ah, I'm just going to tell the story and give as much as people need to, I think, follow the story. Although it's hard because these people have been in my head so many years to know what you need. But I tried to just give you what you need to follow that one story and forgot about putting in all the stuff that happened before. Because if you keep doing that, at some point the book sinks under the... And then right, eventually the half world. the book is... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking of um, I'm, the Stephen King's Dark Tower books, where he will summarize at the beginning of each one, and you know, by the end of the, you know, by, when you get deeper and deeper in the series, it's like, and it's Stephen King, of course, so, but you know, it's twenty five, yeah. thirty pages of summary. So yeah. Oh well, yeah, and you, a lot, uh, a lot yeah. of the, a lot of the uh, fantasy sagas are like that too, mm -hmm. yeah. and that. At some point, especially if you get into multiple generations, you're reading the entire history of this world, and you feel like, I should have brought a pencil. Is there going to be a test? <laughs> you might have just saved so, time by so reading all 17 books. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad um, you could talk. Um, so, so this is, so this is, uh, what we said, the fifth book, but it's really the third in, in this one storyline. And then there are two novels that kind of, um, take place, like you said, back on Earth about the, the fall of the regime there. And this picks up after that. Um, and there was something you said about the, uh, technology in here, um, how it, this is 500 years in the future, but the technology overall hasn't, um, maybe progressed the way you would expect expect it to 500 years. And um, one thing I really liked about this, and this is just my own personal prejudices that I probably shouldn't say in a public forum like this, is that um, I find computer stuff boring most of the time unless it's done really well. And I like that this focused more on, um, you know, uh, space travel and, um, you know, we've got, cities and uh, then, of course, in genetic engineering and these kind of things. And I just wonder, was that a conscious choice? Um, and how did that come about when you were building this world to kind of go with the sort of, I mean, it's not that there is no uh, you know, communication tech. No, no. Part of the problem is that I wrote, I wrote this in 1998. However, the future history, which Ioton, but uh, it will come. <laughs> the future history was okay. Why do I have the future history? Because I thought it was mandatory. <laughs> when I started writing science fiction, I was 26, and you know, I have I had read a lot of science fiction, but the one that influenced me most was Heinlein. So, mm-hmm. of course, I looked at it and went, if you want to write serious science fiction, you have to have a future history. So mm-hmm. I had this long chart of a future history. No, it was very useful. When when I had a writer's group and we had to do a short story a week, it made it very easy to come up with stories. Because you look over the chart, you look for a point of conflagration, and you set a story there. However, when I wrote it over the internet, and we're actually very bad as humans at understanding everything the technology is going to hit, even while we're living it. You know, and when I sketched that, the internet was something we went to for like two minutes at a time for a bulletin board mm-hmm. or something because. It was over the phone. Uh, we actually, my husband worked for MTI, so I got to use it more often, but it was still a very limited thing. And it hadn't penetrated my consciousness to the point where I wrote a future in which this, this form, the instant communications with masses of people around the world mm. were a thing. However, by the time I revised Starship needs just before it was accepted. It was a thing. And I don't know how to put this, but I think it's very hard to have the type of totalitarian regime they have if the internet is safe. Because yeah. uh, secret technology, all that stuff, it's going to come. Someone's going to lose it. It's going to be on the net. 
So I have, and part of their liberation, and they will now be kind of getting more into mass communication, chaotic mass communication, which is what we have. But part of what happened is the regime controls mass communication. So the Internet, as we know it, doesn't exist. Now, it also is more interesting from the storytelling point of view. I don't know that it's a world I'd want to live in. As I said, in many ways, it's profoundly dystopic. But I wanted, I also wanted that sense of deep time. Things happen, like, they're really sketchy on their history. They have tons of information about things that don't matter, like popular songs. But, <laughs> you know, the real history, they're like, <laughs> it is a rumor this happened. This person might have lived because at various points, and there were at least two major upheavals on the way to the future, and at various points, people deliberately destroyed knowledge of this. So, I, in fact, I had a reviewer ask me, is it 500 years in the future or 600? I said, I don't know. Because at some point, there were points at which the chronology wasn't exactly kept, and when they resumed, you know, it was kept in some places in the world, not in the others, and then they sort of agreed on a comment. Oh, you mm -hmm. say it's 2000 and uh, 2186. We say it's 2150. Let's split the difference. Right. <laughs> Even though they have, yeah, they have ways to contact and they have, you know, of course, there are start dates and ways to view start dates. But they, they, we're also talking about a regime that wasn't particularly concerned with the truth so much as with keeping a narrative. So, Let's anyway. Talk about that. Yeah. It sounds awfully Really not. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, we don't want to scare people off. Let's talk about, um, I guess, you know, we're going to have to have some spoilers, obviously, because this is the third book in a series. So um, maybe let's talk about um, the regime that was on Earth. And um, uh, th we have the good men, and um, there's the mules, and, um, of course, this colony of Eden. Um, the, the, um, what? What happened was sometime, and I had it originally as being towards the end of the 21st century. I should have let, left it more vague, but no. Um, at, at some time, towards the end of the 21st century, we have a population crisis, at least in developed countries. We're already starting the beginnings of that. And, and in undeveloped countries, we don't know what population they have. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I look at the UN statistics and I laugh because I know how the census is done in Portugal, which is, you know, technically a first world country. And people assume these are that, I mean, people will claim spurious children because they get more than <laughs> When, no, I'm serious. It, it's just, I, I, I think I technically still live with my parents and I'm unemployed. But it's, everyone does it. I mean, it's, it's all over. <laughs> and, you know, and it makes me look at 
people say, oh, we have X billion people. It's like, did you count them? Because yeah. if you didn't, I wouldn't trust that. It's just, especially from countries that are net receivers of international aid, there is a built-in uh, benefit to claiming a lot mm-hmm. of people. Uh, the, the, I remember at one point I was talking to Dave Freer, for the benefit of those looking at home, is also way an author, and he was talking about aids that done in Africa, where he lived at the time, and that was never reflected in any population count. It was, you know, mm. people just dropping dead and millions of orphans never reflected, because that's not what they do. They they are more concerned with image. So anyway, sometime in the late 21st century, it becomes obvious there's a population crisis, at least in developed industrial countries. That I might might have made too late. So they have the technology. And interestingly, I laugh because we're starting to see artificial ones. And they have the technology. And the government, basically, of these countries uh, nationalizes the ova and sperm from countless fertility treatments that are still archived in banks. And they make people, they make children, except mm-hmm. when they start out, they just take them in animals. Animals who are some form of chimera, like the the mice with the human ears, that type of thing. They yeah, are they right. are they can carry human babies. But the first first batches go horribly wrong. And most of these people are functionally mentally retarded, which is fine because what they want is laborers. So so there are vast quantities and they're called mules because they can't reproduce. First of all they're all male. Mm-hmm. And Second, they have some kind of genetic tinkering so they can't reproduce. They're not fertile. And uh, those are the mules. Somewhere along the line, while they're making these in batch lots, and they're becoming better, and and they're also starting to improve normal. You know, I want my child to be beautiful. And they start... Mm-hmm to sell that type of service, someone has, someone probably, I guess, Germany or England, I, I haven't pinned it down, but comes up with a brilliant idea. We're going to create perfect functionaries, uh, people who are completely adept at managing a complex bureaucracy. The problem we have is that, you know, the bureaucracy has all stripped human capacity. We're going to create these, these super government employees and <laughs> raise them in such a way that they're completely uninterested in self-advancement and they will exist serve. What they actually do is create, I don't know the exact count because then they created slightly different people, and they were all aggregated to the group. But they created people 
with what we consider super abilities, just past what's normal, really. They move faster, they are smarter, all this, and they then raise them in um, a good approximation of Dante's Inferno to, to make sure they, they have no self-interest and all that. And what results are the mules? They are called the mules because of the first batch. However, they they start off as a rumor. They're creating Superman in an institution. The institution's actually in Germany. And from there on, you know, they appear and disappear. And after a big world war, this is where it gets cold. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, this got <laughs> people, people are trying to escape high tax, high control state by creating CCTs. And these CCTs benefit of materials we don't have yet. They're, they're basically very large islands, completely artificial, anchored. Most of them are anchored. In the beginning, there are a few that are smaller and mobile and mostly devoted to illegal industries. <laughs> but but the, the, the bigger ones are, are anchored and they're, they're just large islands. And in the beginning, at least, some are started by banks. Some are started. They, they don't have government as we view it. Eventually, I'll have to write mm -hmm. in that time, too. And... Almost of a uh, capitalist anarchy. And uh, in the middle of the 22nd century, there's a, a war with the land states. And the CCTs end up winning, but they're left fatally weak. And this is the equivalent of World War One for Europe. They're left fatally weakened, and they've lost some of their... Some of their certainty about what they're doing. So, in the aftermath, most of them are infiltrated and taken over by these people, the, the super functionaries, who have long since taken over and, you know, in positions of power in their countries. And they've done some truly horrible things which they want to leave behind mostly in the sense of um, truly bad ecological decisions. <laughs> and and they want to leave it behind, so they take over the CCTs. Some of them take over countries, and this is known as the time of the bio-lords, because they're bioengineers, and they are the lords of the land. They don't like being called mules, for, for whatever reason. They govern for close to 200 years. They are not immortal, but they are very long-lived, particularly using the uh, biotechnologies of the time. And they govern for some 200 years, by which point they have made such a hash. They don't like people very much, and they never fully understand people. So they do something really atrocious things. I mean, they don't have the internal stops we have of those are people like me. And I can't do that to them. So, by that time, there is 
an attempted revolution against them that ends up in the turmoils. They had been building a interstellar ship called the Jervian. And originally, what people on Earth believed, if it had happened and wasn't a myth, is that um, the, the biolords who could reach it in time had left in the Jervian, unless the others died. In Dark Ship Revenge, it turns out that's not exactly the truth. And right. uh, and they left. Um, so people on Earth always assumed that the, the biolords who left, the mules that left in the Jervian, are the good guys. They're, they're the best of their kind. Again, that is not exactly the truth. And uh, the ones who stayed on Earth, this was rather amused me because I have observed in in reading a lot about revolution, I realized that there will be a revolution against, say, the nobility. And a great number of them get killed and whatnot. But if you look under the new regime, couple hundred years on the the line, they are again in control. The same the same families are again. So it amused me because this is a revolution against bioengineered people. Most of the bioengineered people who get killed are actually not really, you know, the grossly bioengineered. They're just you know, I want my baby to be pretty. I want mm-hmm. my baby be good with math. Those are the people that get killed because they're the ones who are among the people. The mules who were left behind thought that the uh, excrement hit the rotating object and dove for cover. And when they emerge in 50 years or so, they have impeccable identities and, and they present themselves as not bioengineered at all. And, uh, and they, because they were created for this, they immediately get power. And the reason they're called the good men is that, you know, they are from the most non-bioengineered lines. They have a problem at that point. Because mostly how they've been keeping themselves young or alive is by having parts run and grafted on and, you know, extensive um, plastic cosmetic surgery and all that stuff. And now bioengineering is forbidden and cloning is forbidden. And also, there's supposed to be this uh, absolutely, you know, normal human but they can't have children. So by that time, they figured, because initially they were also supposed to not be able to be cloned, but they figured out how to defeat that. So what they do is have clones and raise them as their children mm-hmm. and then take over and inherit from themselves, which is, you know, 
that's a spoiler for the first book, but I honestly don't, it's not the point of the book, so even if you know it happens, I don't think it's, right. it's ruined the book. And they've been doing this for, they've been inheriting from themselves. There are just enough, because of course they, they marry someone to have a surrogate mother and to have an official birth. And there's just enough fidelity that they do have daughters now and then. But they're here. They're, the firstborn is almost always male. Mm. And uh, also the the society, just to avoid, you know, there was infidelity first, is, is incredibly sexist in that respect. And women can only inherit if there are no male heirs. So, and they keep they are smart, they are ruthless, and they've kept a tight control on the society for, they keep talking about 300 years of stability and, and prosperity. Hmm. And that's true, it has, in find it has a cost, because they also have to get rid of inventors. And those would improve things, but improving is destabilizing. And, you know, that's why they don't have colonies in space and all that. There is a cost, but they have kept relative peace and prosperity for 300 years. And, of course, because the funny thing is when I named the ship, I didn't think about it because I'm an idiot. But um, <laughs> when when you name a ship Jervian, it will return, <laughs> and, and Dark Ship Revenge is where it does. Now, R Dark Ship Revenge is about half the book I intended it to be. This is the second or third time it has happened to me in this series because I see the the historical movement, you know. This happened, and these are the consequences, and that's a book. Only there's no possible way to cram all that into a book. Right. Um, so the next one is not the next in the series, because I'd like to do one in, in the Earth Revolution sub-series before that. But the next one in the Athena cycle is Dark Ship Defiance, which is where they cope with with what happened in Eden while while Starship Revenge was happening on Earth. Um, oh, okay. So well, I was going to ask you if you want to, because Athena is our main character, and if you could um, maybe talk a little bit about her and how she fits into this and who she is. And then there's also um, this is this is spoiler, I guess, for the first five pages. Uh, she has a baby in this, and that's kind of a, a very big deal, um, not just plot-wise, but also in the world-building. So maybe... Uh... Yes. Um, the, the good men, from the time they took power, have been trying to create a woman of their kind. They have thoughts that prevent them reproducing with normal uh, human females. It might not be, but it's it's a long story. 
So their goal was to create a female of their kind so that they could reproduce normal and have children. Athena is the first successful one. Uh, her name is Athena Yerasinistra because she was made from her dead genes. So, you know, <laughs> Zeus' daughter. Yera mm -hmm. was the mother of the gods. Sinistra is, is just, it, she comes from the left side, so it's not political, but, you know, the thing you never expect. And, um. Sure. She, she was raised, uh, someone, we were, I have a conference on Facebook. Well, it's the same name as in Spain's part. It's Sarah's Diner because it started with the Shifter series, which takes place in the diner. And, uh, someone posted this thing, explain the science fiction book badly. And uh, uh -huh. one of my fans was a wicked sense of humor and probably should be shot, but he's too far away. Posted, <laughs> dark ship thieves, daddy only wants me for my body. And, <laughs> and it's true. I mean, Athena is raised to be a whole body donor for her father's brain. And then her father intends to, you know, have many daughters propagate the species. And, of course, my entire attitude is he wants to do that, but, you know, that's that's me. Um, when I was first writing the book, uh, it was just as I thought I was starting to be considered, oh, it really hurts so. And, uh, I sent it out a couple of times and then lost. In fact, most of the times I sent it out to agents, not to publishers. But it's the first or second that one of the agents sent back, you know, this book is weakened by the fact you don't have chapters from Athena's father's point of view. And I went, oh, good heavens. <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I had chapters from his point of view, I'd end up probably inside my brain, and they don't make instruments for that. So, but anyway, so that's his grand plan. So she was raised, uh, she was kept under control, so she didn't cause scandal. And other than that, she was pretty much stuck to run feral. To the extent she's not feral, she raised herself. Um, mm. She is actually she is actually underneath all the crazy, fairly bookish, because one of her hangouts was her father's old library. But Athena is she's not immoral. She is just she built her own system of morals. So sometimes she she has become more human since she got married because. Her husband was raised in a real family with real people. Mm -hmm. And he is more human. And, but there is a point, I think it's in Dark Ship Revenge, although it could be in any of them, where she says something like, I couldn't kill that many people because Kit would be upset. 
<laughs> which is, you know, it's a basic, I mean, that she doesn't care, but, you know, one tries to avoid marriage, a lot of humans. Um, uh-huh. So, she has a unique, huge perspective on life. Um, the reason her having a child, and the reason it's important is the daughter, is that even though they thought they had succeeded, they can't be absolutely sure until that happens. Um, her husband is of the same genetics, although through a completely different side. And one of the things that's not exactly a spoiler for future books, because there's already an indication of it in Dark Ship Revenge, is that if someone is sufficiently bioengineered, they might be able to crossbreed anyway. And if not, it's possible to overcome the barrier now, because Eden has its own biological science, and it's possible to overcome it uh, through artificial bioengineering. But it's it's still a barrier for most of it, which is going to make... I, I mean, it can be got around, but it it's trial and error. So more error than... than uh, so it makes both Athena and their daughter um, prize properties, you could say. Um, because there are... There are a couple of hundred males that they're the only females they can naturally have children with. And and that sets up, it's okay, I am not writing 1984 or Brand New World. <laughs> <laughs> so there will be solution. <laughs> but it's, it sets up a very ugly situation. And, and there will be lots of strife because of it. Uh, which makes for books, so that's okay. Yeah, but exactly. uh, but yeah, it it really sounds. And I know you know because you have read at least one of them. But the other people, it really sounds a heck of a lot more complex than it is. Possibly. Oh right, yeah. Actually, I was gonna, I was going to comment on that. How um, there is so much. <clears throat> history like that you've worked out and done and that's into but it's all so well integrated in this sort of um adventure space opera it doesn't feel like a um thick you know and, and not to knock these kind of books but you know just like a very dense saga you know multi-generational saga even though it has it elements is. of that it, it will feels, end up yeah. well if the series continues i talked Tony about it, and I said eventually the only thing I see is them going out all night. Not all of them, not all of the characters, but definitely Athena and their husband and some of his family, and just taking off to start yet another colony further from Earth. And but that would be, you know, many books in in the future. So it is a generational saga, but. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of it that way when I was writing. Part of this is because my character's attitude is, there's a problem, let's solve it. Now, sometimes, often, it creates other problems. But it's not a, 
oh, look at my deep history. There is history. I was just reading recently. I won't say it was S.M. Sterling, but could be someone else. One of my colleagues was talking about that, and he said, stop trying to lecture people in your books <laughs> because the lecture will come through anyway if you believe something deeply. Who you are and and what led you to write this book will come through, whether you mean for it to or not. It's harder to suppress, and even then it will come through. So stop trying to consciously put stuff in. It will come through. Right. Don't worry about it. And it was like advice to you know newbie writers. And it's true because I did not set out to make other than the future history. And as I said, I thought that was mandatory. Um, <laughs> I didn't set and, and what I had in the beginning, and it's which is why I owe Tony an actual rational written future history, because I promised her. But it's going to take a while, because what I had was very sketchy. As I said, it was a, a, a map on the wall with dates. This happened more as, as pinpoint places for stories, but I didn't link what had led there, if that makes sense. Mm. So, but it started coming through in the books, because that's what, other than, than you know, science fiction and, and mystery, that's what I read. I read history for fun. My my husband used to say that um, uh, the only reason I wrote was so that I could deduct my um, astronomic purchases at the history book club for Amazon. So <laughs> there were years, there were years when I was starting to write that. Every penny I made, I might as well have made a check over the history book club. And that stuff comes through. So the world building is complex and all that. But I keep it out of the way as much as I can. Because you don't go through life. I don't sit down and go, I'm going to write a novel. Novels have their roots in... You know, mm-hmm. if they were frowned right. upon in the 18th century because they were lies. And so possibly if we go back far enough, they had their roots in the Indo-European telling of stories to know that it's not how we think about them. I write novels. I tell lies for a living. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's there, but we don't think about it all the time. Someone, someone at some point wrote, uh, what it would be like if we were living in in the science fiction stories that that narrate. You know, it's like, I am entering a car. The first car was invented in. Right. (laughs) That annoys me, so I don't do it. I just want want people to get caught up in the story and and go along with it. I mean, sometimes you have to get some stuff in. Um, Right now, and part of the reason to go ahead and write down the future history is that right now, I'm fielding questions from the fans. But Athena said, and what Athena doesn't know 
for one, because she's spectacularly well-educated, so she really doesn't know. Uh, but when she says, this happened 300 years ago, it could be 300, it could be 500. It's, you know, I, my kid, my older kid, who is 25, and actually fairly well-educated, if he doesn't stop to think, confuses the Regency with Elizabethan England. Mm-hmm. Because it's not his area of expertise, it's not, you know, it's not something you talk about. It's just, if I'm reading something and I'll make some comment and he says, and what was Queen Elizabeth doing? And I say, nothing. She had been dead for about 200 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> At which point he goes, oh, shoot, did I do it again? <laughs> because, you know, we... If we're not, if it's not our specialty or we're not thinking about it, it's very easy to just say, oh, it was about X time. So. Right. So yeah, so it's not as complex in the actual telling of the story. Um, it just sounds ungodly complex when I try to explain it, especially in speech, because I get lost in my own sentence. Um, sure. So, I, I, Dark Ship, Dark Ship Revenge, um, was started being written the last, up until last June. We moved five times or six times, depending on how you count, in two years. Huh. It, it it's all in the same region. It was part of selling a house, but because it was a Victorian, we had to do large-scale remodeling inside. Mm-hmm. So we had to rent, and then our landlord decided we couldn't rent for the whole period because we'd gone over our lease, and it just... <sighs> we just ended up moving a lot. So, you know, I'm trying to write the book. In the middle of, um, yeah, I can't in. imagine moving and trying to yeah, do something like that. So. No, it, my life is just now, and we moved almost a year ago, and I'm just now starting to have a normal routine again. But right. this, like from January, even with the flu and all, it's been much better. But I, they said, you know, we need the cover for Dark Ship Revenge. So can you send us an outline? So I sent an outline. I was shaky on the outline because I was still trying to cram both movements of, of the event, both Earth and Eden in there. Yeah. And I sent it in. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the artist, which is horrible because I like his work so uh, much. Let's see. I've got it. Hang on. Let me look. Steve Hickman. Yes. Steve Hickman. I like his work very yeah. much. And also, yeah. when my when my younger son was having issues, uh, he was being bullied at school, and it was a very unhappy year for him. About ten years ago, um, he spent like five or six hours at Liberty Con talking to my younger son about drawing, huh. and because. My younger son loves drawing, and, well, he's decided to be an engineer, 
so he doesn't do it as much now. But at the time, it was big thing. Steve Hickman was very kind to him. And at that time, that really made a huge difference. But I like him as an artist, too. I mean, he is amazing. On he creates people that really come alive to you. So mm-hmm. he calls me, which <laughs> it's like, can we give him your number? I said, sure. But I'm thinking, you know, I if you count the mysteries I've written and other series I've written for other houses, I have 30-some books out. I have never had an artist call me. Well, he called me. And I was in the middle of packing, get the phone call. I'm talking to him. And I said, oh, I sent the outline. He said, let's forget the outline. What is this book about? And I'm trying to boil it down, you know, because it's like, well, and then this. And then it hit me, and I said, this book is about parenthood. Which is weird, but it's really what it is about. Yeah, what sure. Children, yeah. How to raise children, what we owe children. How you can totally destroy a child, even without meaning to. And, and that, that was how we got the image for the cover. Because we were talking, I said, well, there's the children from the young. Because he said, well, there is a child, a teenage baby. I said, yes, but she's an infant. <laughs> you know, other than as a motivation force and, and sort of a distraction. She doesn't have much right. hope. I said, but there's the children from the young. And that's where I started describing them. You know, they more or less raised themselves with some help from AI. They have all this body modification things going on. And and all of a sudden, it, I don't know how to put it. I knew what the book was about. I had an outline. But when I talked to Steve, it sort of focused it. And it was much easier to write after that, even, yeah. even with all the books. Because I knew what the, the theme pulling me forward was. Right. So, so you know, at Liberty Con, Tony said, can you talk about the book? And I said, sure. It's a book about motherhood and parenthood in general. And, uh, you know. And people look horrified. I said, oh, it's okay. It's still explosions. It's still explosions. Fight the spaceship. Because I think they thought, you know. This takes right. place entirely in the nursery. It's like, no, no, no. It's, it's still a normal book. It's just, that's the central theme. So, it's also part of it is that Athena is growing up. Um, mm-hmm. And having a child, particularly for those of us, and I, I think most kids fall under this, who never really expected it. I mean, we we never expected to have a, a normal family, and we were loners as kids and thought it was going to last forever. Having a child is, in a way, it makes you real. You you become you become part of the chain, and and yeah. you have a, in the future, and that kind of gives you. You grow up, whether you mean to or not. 
because you're responsible to what comes up. And, uh, and that, you know, you're going to see more of that in the scene as it goes on. Hope. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess because we're, we're running low on time here, um, this has been great, but I, as you said, as it goes on and you've hinted at this, um, so what is next for the uh, Dark Ship series? Or, um, you mentioned there's more to this story, but then that also you want to go back and uh, work on the, the side series a little bit as well. Um, so what, what have you got planned for the future well, for, uh, for the Dark Ship? Well, I, I try part of the, the Earth's Revolution series. I meant to have a revolution and a few good men is more or less consciously patterned on uh, the Moon's Arch Mystery. It was a, now let's do it without supercomputers <laughs> and in a much larger world. But as I was writing it, I realized the Earth is too large. There are even, even though the good men have homogenized the, the culture a great deal, there is still cultural difference that you can just say, you know, and they all came to the same conclusion. So, uh, A Few Good Men is the equivalent of the American Revolution to an extent. And, and that gets into stuff like that there is a bizarre cult centered around the United States. You know, and, and that's way too much to go into. Um, and Through Fire is the French Revolution. Um, to a great extent, including, in the end, sort of it's on Napoleon, although there is a twist there. And the the next one, um, I won't say how it ends, but comes to yet a completely different solution. And the main character is Fuse, who, who has been mentally disabled for most of the series, uh, frozen at about six years of age because of an accident. But who, as you know, in Dark Ship Revenge is in the process of recovering. Mm-hmm. And um, Hacking the Storm is his book, and it's both, it's both what's happening outside and what's happening inside his head as, as far as the storm goes. And uh, that would be the next book on Earth, the book of the Earth Revolution. Meanwhile, Athena and Kit, at the end of, of Dark Ship Revenge, go back to Eden, the colony comes from. The Jovian stopped on Eden on its way to Earth. And very bad things happen. And they find themselves in a position where they don't have anyone on their side and, and they have to they have to retake the colony in order to rescue kids' family. Um and that's that's the next one which is Dark Ship Defiance. After which I presume there will be a return to Earth because they left their daughter on Earth. So <laughs> I don't Yeah, they'll probably be back. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's like that scene where you forget the baby on top of the car. You you should remember to put him in the car before you take off. So, uh, well, great. So that's, Sounds like uh, we will have more dark shit books for a while. Then seems like so. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. And there, you know, and I'm going to try to do another one in the Shifter series. I mean. Now that I that I have an office and it's not being packed or unpacked, uh, right. <laughs> the possibilities it, are endless. Yeah. Yes, it's been <laughs> ten months, and you know I have an office and no one has touched it. So there is <laughs> there is a sense that that there's a lot of stuff that thought well, and and before that I was apparently extremely hypothyroidal, didn't know it. Which meant I was writing very slowly and getting curious with myself. And mm-hmm. um, that's been fixed. So, as I said, right now there's this sense of I've wasted a lot of time and I need to get going and all these series and finish. And, you know, so, so that's what's going on. And, uh, yeah, I, I like this universe partly because it is borderline dystopian. And it's up to the characters to make it non dystopian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I enjoyed this reading this first one. I might ought to go back and uh, pick it back up uh, at the beginning. Um, but just for everyone listening, uh, I'll just say it again. The book is Dark Ship Revenge, and uh, it is out now in uh, trade paperback from Bain. So, uh, Sarah, thanks for walking us through this uh, complex history that isn't complex when you read it. Uh, and uh, talking about the book with us today. Thank you. And now we begin our serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new home world of Sherbleek and somewhat low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to re-establish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, Master Trader Sean Yos Galan, aboard Corval's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problems. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisted, while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the eyes of port security systems. Traveling with Dutiful Passage on this unsettling journey is Patty Yoskalan, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for lost time due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior. She is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And now, Part 1 of Alliance of Equals. Audible Studios presents An Alliance of Equals, Leoden Universe, Ark of the Covenants, Book 2. Written by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Performed by Kevin T. Collins. Chapter 1 Dutiful Passage He rushed her, 
a tall Terran male overtopping and outmassing her. Patty dropped back one step, flat-footed and centered, knees flexed, and he was on her, keeping himself tight, seeking to overturn her with his speed and flatten her under his weight. She ducked inside his reach, snatching at belt and elbow, twisting her upper body, letting him lift himself over her shoulder. Momentum, it was all his own momentum. And in the last instant before she let him go, she straightened, adding her motion to his, throwing him with every ounce of strength she possessed before she released him and continued the spin, completing the move and dissipating unused energy. Her late opponent hit the floor some number of his own body lengths down the room. Hit, rolled, and leapt to his feet, turned, and bowed, as vanquished to victor. Your follow, having thrown your attacker far away, he inquired in Terran. Paddy's bow was from student to teacher. I would have run, sir and been many blocks distant before he regained his feet. And if he had a partner at the top of the street, I would have shot her, she said coolly, and run on. I see. Arms Master Schneider looked around the practice room as if he were seeing something other than the padded walls and floor. Paddy folded her hands and waited. Armsmaster Schneider took time with his words, and there was no speeding the man up, no matter how much one might wish it. Patty supposed it another sort of practice, and did her best to recruit herself to patience. I wonder, he said eventually, walking toward her, his posture soft and his hands unthreatening. Patty remained at center and allowed her hands to unfold into neutral positions at her sides. Her instructor did not seem to notice. He continued to walk gently forward, his eyes on her face. It's very natural, he said, resuming speech without giving voice to what it was he had wondered. To want to throw an enemy as far from yourself as possible, gaining the opportunity to run. But it seems to me, Paddy, that your solution to a rush is invariably to throw. He smiled and added, even if you are able to throw impressively far. He paused, well inside Paddy's defense space, and settled deliberately, hooking his thumbs in his belt. We're fortunate to have such ample practice space, but I wonder what you would do. If you were on port and had to counter an attack in, let's say, a small space, an alley, a vestibule, even a fresher, what, for instance, if the person standing peaceably next to you suddenly lunged? He did so, far too close for mercy. There was only one imperative here, survive to protect her pilot and her passengers, a little boy with two infants in his charge. She knew the answer. She had drilled the answer until it was reflex. Ducking, she stepped into his lunge, raised a hand, and snapped into a short, savage jump. 
The extended palm should have caught him under the chin, but Armsmaster Schneider was far too canny for that. He arched into a backflip, using the space he had only just been scolding her for utilizing. Patty landed lightly in place, shaking her arms to release the energy she had withheld. Delivered with full force, the strike to the chin would have snapped her attacker's head back and broken his neck. It was, of course, very bad form to kill one's instructor. Besides, she liked Armsmaster Schneider, and it was practice. Even if the blow had landed, he would have been in no danger, though he might have had a headache after. Your reasoning, he asked, from two body lengths away. Paddy bowed. You had posited cramped quarters and an assailant well within my space. The only sure answer in such a case is a kill. I cannot risk a deflection. I might find myself snatched and immobilized, unable even to call a warning. I cannot risk a prolonged engagement if, indeed, as you had also offered, the first attacker was one of a team. I am alone, and I must prevail quickly if I am to survive. There was a long silence while Armsmaster Schneider mulled over his store of words. Let's try another scenario, in that same small space, in a confusion of wind and darkness, let's say. A person is grabbing for you and crying out. What's your answer? Patty frowned and paused to consider the question twice, suspecting a trick, but a second examination revealed nothing that might change her answer. It is the same, she said calmly. I must take definitive action. And if it's later found that the person who reached for you was asking for your assistance or warning you of danger, your answer would kill an innocent, even an ally, no differently than a villain. But this is play-acting, Paddy thought irritably. The only intent I can be certain of is my own, she said, which was straight from the training tapes they had learned on the rock. Others depend upon me. I cannot risk myself. What do you risk? by dancing and avoid before the kill. Time, she said promptly. Tempo, opportunity. Armsmaster Schneider pressed his lips together, which he did when he was considering something especially difficult. We have a few minutes left, he said eventually. Let's practice some of the common avoids. Particularly, we should pay attention to how much time is lost to the move, and if tempo can be preserved or even created, you will take the part of the attacker. He bowed, and she did. Both centered themselves. At will, he said, and Patty launched into action. There was no new correspondence in his mail queue. There was, for instance, no letter from the Terran Trade Commission confirming the committee's decision to upgrade Shurbleak Port from local to regional. 
Such confirmation had been promised to him by the committee chair no later than the end of the Rulama, which was fast approaching. Additionally, there was no letter from Lomar Fasholt, which he had been expecting daily, if not hourly, since Theo had reported that his former trade partner had broken with her temple and subsequently disappeared from her homeworld. Nor, for that matter, was there a message from Theo acknowledging receipt of his pin beam and reporting that she, her ship, and her crew were en route to Shurbleek and the safety of Corval's clan house. Sean glared at the empty inbox. It hardly seemed fair or fitting that a circumstance which ought to have afforded real, if fleeting, pleasure should instead generate strong feelings of frustration. He felt his fingers moving in a soothing, familiar rhythm, glanced down and saw a chipped red gaming counter, its edges showing naked wood, moving across the knuckles of his left hand. The token crossed the last knuckle, his hand turned, palm up, to catch the thing before once again setting it on its journey. He sighed. He had acquired the gaming token and the fingering exercise elsewhere and some little while ago. In fact, he had lately considered himself quit of both having gone so many days undisturbed by either, only to find them manifesting again, and with the passage barely out of the home port. Simple sleight of hand, that was all. Completely unremarkable, save for the manner of its acquisition. Three times, while he watched, the token walked across his knuckles. At the end of the fourth journey across the back of his hand, it did not fall into his waiting palm, but seemed instead to vanish into plain air. That would, perhaps, have been comforting if he did not know with a certainty that had nothing to do with logic, or even understanding how the trick was done, that the token was, now, in his right front trouser pocket. Blast the thing! He took a deep breath to cool his irritation and looked back to the screen. Certainly, he had other work to fill his idle hours, even if he had no mail. The touch of a key banished his unsatisfying inbox and brought the sketch of the new trade route onto the screen. It was, truth told, a malformed and unbalanced thing hardly worthy of a novice trader, much less a master. He knew how to build roots, of course, but the sad truth was that most of his work as Corval's master trader had been the maintenance and modification of long-established roots built by the master traders who had gone before him. He hadn't built a major new route since, well, since the Bestwell Kessel Lequantus route, the year that Paddy was born. Admit it, Sean, he said aloud. You've gotten soft. There being no argument forthcoming from himself, he reached for his wine glass and sipped, eyes on the inelegant shambles adorning his screen. 
He might, he thought, putting the glass aside, be somewhat kinder to himself. The route, as described, revealed not so much a master trader whose skills had atrophied as a master trader who was required to feel his way, combining discovery with design. The first part of the route, that had been well enough, with six stops of light trade, all at ports known to Corval ships, if not to dutiful passage herself. At each of those six ports, in addition to the trade, he and Priscilla had met with allies and business partners to strengthen old ties and to build new ones, where necessary, the two of them empowered by the Delm to speak with their voice. They were now embarking upon the second phase, wherein they would be on the search for new trade partners, allies, and business associates. They would also, in this phase, as in the former, be demonstrating to the universe that Clan Corval, doing business as tree and dragon family, was doing business, that it was not afraid of its enemies, nor ashamed of its past actions. Miri had dubbed the plan playing chicken with the universe, but she had agreed with him, Priscilla, and with Valcon that the demonstration was required. Though the actions that had seen Corval banished from Liad had been justified, not to say necessary, they had, people, rumor, and politics being what they were, their character to redeem, and the sooner they began that work, the sooner they would succeed. Also, they labored under another piquant truth. The clan's purse was less than plump. Oh, they were by no means destitute, and Ms. Deagos was hard at work establishing new income streams and researching new investments. Still, there had been a cost in removing themselves and their finances from Leaden society and Leaden economy. In the long term, Liad would pay the larger portion of that invoice, which, while satisfying to contemplate, did nothing to mitigate the necessity of Corval's holding household while establishing a firm base of operations on a rather backward planet and seeking to expand their resources. Historically, the clan had expanded resources through trade, and it was his duty, as Corval's master trader, to build new routes, strong, viable, profitable routes, and build them quickly, which he had best be about. So, their first new stop on the route they were simultaneously discovering and building was Andiri in the Kinsa sector. According to the Guild Quick Guide, Andiri was a solid port, rated safe for whatever comfort that might lend to the naive or those who made it their business to be unsafe. It declared itself Terran, yet had included in its colonizing population a small number of Leaden artisan clans. That was of interest, being something like the situation in which Corval now discovered itself. 
the Leiden artists of Andiri, rather than forming an enclave from which the greater planetary society was excluded, as Leidens had done on other worlds where they were the minority population. The artists had embraced the local culture, first on the level of craft, as they joined with those who shared their passions for pottery, sculpture, painting, papermaking, carving, and weaving, and from that base spreading out into and finally joining with the planetary society. According to the anthropologists who had studied the place, what had occurred over time was not the assimilation of one population with its customs into the other, but a melding that had produced a separate but equal third society with entirely new customs. The primary unit of personal allegiance, for instance, was neither clan nor family, but guild. Contract marriage existed, but between guildmasters only, as a political tool rather than for progeny. Balance existed, administered formally through the guilds, while balance between individuals was socially unacceptable. Sean sighed. Andiri was perhaps a glimpse of Corval's future though it was difficult to imagine Shurebleek's blunt and rugged culture allowing itself to accept anything of Leaden's sensibilities, or even Corval House custom. It was profoundly disturbing to think that they, that who they were and had been since the Great Migration itself, would be lost within a generation or two. The door to his office hissed slightly as it opened, and he spun from his screen, coming to his feet as his life-mate entered. She paused, brows knit, as the door closed quietly behind her. Sean, what's wrong? In addition to her Melantes as life-mate to the Thodelm of Jos Gallen and captain of the Dutiful Passage, Priscilla Delacroix-Imendoza was also a witch, or, according to Leadens, a Dramlisa. She would have read his emotions even as he now read hers, thereby learning that she was tired and slightly irritable. A meeting with the third mate, then, he thought, moving around the desk. Nothing so much as wrong, he said, opening his arms. I was only reflecting on Corval's future and how we will soon become strangers to ourselves. Priscilla stepped willingly into the offered hug, her arms going round his waist. She sighed deeply and dropped her head to his shoulder. He lay his cheek against her soft curls and breathed in her fragrance. He's a bit stiff in the honor, the third mate, he murmured. Priscilla hiccuped a small laugh. He is, isn't he? She sighed again, and he tasted the particular tang of a relaxation exercise, even as her body softened against his. I ordered a tray brought to us here, she said, straightening slowly out of the embrace. I hope you'll join me. Breakfast or supper, he asked lightly, 
both or neither, or perhaps a midnight snack before I seek my bed. She smiled at him and added, my lonely bed. He laughed. Underhanded play, Priscilla. Nothing more than the truth. She tipped her head. The change in Corval's estate worries you. Not our estate, so much as our future, he said, moving toward the cabinet. May I pour you a glass of wine? Please. Priscilla preferred white wine. He poured generously. Valcon was pleased to leave Liad, though not, she added thoughtfully, necessarily with the manner of it. Valcon is Yosfelium and a scout. He's obliged to find the former homeworld tiresome. He sighed and shook his head. It may be that I refine too much. After all, if we're to become something else, it was father who began it, with his Terran life mate. Only see what came of that. Even more Terran life mates, Priscilla asked, taking the glass from his hand with a smile. Three so far, in the following generation, he agreed, turning toward the desk to retrieve his own glass. The gods alone know what or whom Nova may embrace. If anyone, Priscilla said, and glanced toward the desk an instant before the incoming message chime sounded from the calm. Sean stepped round the desk and tapped a key. The letter in queue was from James Abrofinda. Sean smiled. He was fond of James Abrofinda and met him too seldom. He'd been a tree and dragon contractor for at least twenty standards and notice of buyout. Sean blinked and sat down carefully in his chair. Immediately after, Corval's action against the Department of the Interior base beneath Liad's surface, which had, regrettably, left a crater in Solcintra City. He had received quite a number of buyout notices, most from Liadans, as would be expected. He had, by this time, rather thought he was done with buyout notices. To receive one now, and from such a source, a Terran small trader running a long, stable route, open to trying new or slightly outrageous cargoes, quick to communicate what worked and what didn't. But wait, there was a letter, too. Sean tapped a key and felt a light hand settle on his shoulder. I thought we'd seen the last buyout, Priscilla said as I did. But here, James has done us the kindness of explaining himself. A quick scan put him in possession of the facts. James had come in to Cappenport, where he was not only well-known, but expected. Before the hull was cool, the port had slapped him with a fine equal to half his cargo. Because he's our contractor, Priscilla said, reading along with him and because Cappenport decided that Corval committed crimes against a planet and is therefore outlawed. Sean read the next bit aloud.
I'd been hearing some muttering here and there about tree and dragon turning bad, but I put it down to the usual. This, though, I'm a small shipper. I can't afford another fine like this one. Outcome is that I dumped the cargo, next port up, and cleared the logos and call signs off the hull and out of my landing packet. I never thought I'd do this, but there's no other way. I'm buying the contract out. The deposit's been made to my usual account. I'm sorry for it. There's no acrimony in it, except for the pinheads at Cappenport. You and me and the dragon, we're in balance. But we can't do business. Here's my advice. Change the trade name. If you want to keep on with the family business, I don't like to think about what might have happened if Pale Wing or the Passage had come onto Cappenport, considering what they felt was just punishment for a contractor. Be careful, Sean. He sighed and leaned his head back into Priscilla's hip. A rational man, James. Of course, change our name is just what we can't do. The Delm being adamant in their opinion that we have comported ourselves with impeccable Melanti and are in no way ashamed of our actions. Corval revealed and weakened a hidden enemy of Liad and its people, Priscilla said, her fingers quietly kneading his shoulders. Not only have we done nothing wrong, Corval is a hero. Not to hear the Council of Clans tell it and various news sources, but I agree. Corval's honor is unscathed, and our Melanti in the matter of the Department of the Interior is pure. He sighed. Poor James. A two-contra buyout on top of that fine, and he'll have dumped the cargo at salvage rates, Sean said. Send the money back. Tell him it's compensation for his loss, that Tree and Dragon doesn't expect its contractors to bear the expense of false accusations. Sean laughed. Priscilla, that's reasoned like a Leaden. No, she said seriously. It's reasoned like an honorable person who wants to do well by those who have done well for him. A chill froze him for a moment before he shook his head. Yes, I am going to have to become accustomed, aren't I? It'll come, Priscilla said, and he felt the brush of her emotions, amusement and concern with concern, the greater part of the mixture. I suppose it will, he said. Paddy's generation will be the last, I think, to consider themselves Leighton. Those who follow will be bleakers. He sighed. Who names a planet sure bleak? Priscilla laughed. It was descriptive, surely. Oh, surely, and still is. Until Mr. Brunner gets those weather satellites up and tuned, and even then, I fear we'll only have graduated to half bleak. Our house will be there, she murmured, which was perhaps an attempt to give his thoughts a more cheerful direction, in which she was partly successful.
our house will be there. If ever architect Vin Zeller will finish with the plans and send them to us, I'd hoped to break ground during the current year's summer. If we need to wait through another winter, a chime sounded, sweet and high, the door annunciator. Your midnight snack arrives, Sean said to Priscilla, and raised his voice slightly. Come. The door whisked aside, and arms master Schneider brought his tall and muscled self into the office. He paused and inclined slightly from the waist, his compromise between a bow and a Terran nod. I hope I'm not inconvenient, he said. Not in the least, Sean assured him, considering the swirl of the man's emotions. What may I be honored to do for you? John came another step into the office and gave them each a solemn glance in turn. Well, sir, ma'am, I'd like to talk to you about Paddy's defense training. That's it for the first installment of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and that's it for this week's edition of the Bane Free Radio Hour. I, David F. Shyrod, have been your host this week. Tony Daniel will be back next time. I want to thank Sarah Hoyt for taking the time to talk with me about Dark Ship Revenge, and also thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And of course, thanks to you, listener. Join us next week here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>